You're listening to Rock Labs Radio and this is your host Tanmay Shah. On today's show we have with us Polis Yuvadis who is a language enthusiast. He loves languages. He teaches Lithuanian and English. So you have guessed where he's from. He's joining us. He's he'll be talking about Lithuania today. He's also a writer and host of a podcast called The Ink Well which talks to other lingophiles and polyglot enthusiasts basically people who love languages he has also studied he has done a ba in sociology and anthropology from vuta to magnus university is how do you pronounce that vitautus yeah. very good vitautas magnus university that okay. is correct Great. So I really love when there are anthropologists and sociologists coming to the show because I really like talking about culture, and we are going to do we are going to talk about culture and languages. So let's dive into this. Uh, we'll talk about Lithuania. Then I have questions for you, and then we'll have the signature sure. round. Fantastic. Okay. So uh, let's start by sharing how where is Lithuania on the map on Google Earth and Google Maps. Yeah, we go. Yeah, yeah it's such a small country, so it, it's nice to have a map on, uh, j- just because sometimes it can go overlooked in the whole scheme of the world. Yes, in the previous episode we spoke about Greenland, and we also talked. We came to this region for references, Denmark, and all that. And here is Lithuania, next to Latvia and Estonia, which is next to Russia and between. Poland and next to Belarus. Fun facts. Yeah, we uh, we have. Uh, yeah. Sorry for sorry for interrupting. Please continue. Latvia. Looking at Latvia, I, I just reminded of my co-host in earlier episodes, Laura Greenberger. So you can hear her voice and thoughts in the audio-only episodes, which are like one to ten. You can see it on Spotify or Apple Podcast. But yes, so nice to be uh, talking to her neighbor. from lithuania here is lithuania and these are called the baltic states right because of the baltic sea yeah they are called the baltic states but uh, interestingly estonian is not a baltic language it's oh. uh, finno-ugric and uh, it it isn't even an indo-european language which is also a fun fact about uh, the free baltic sisters so lithuanian and latvian Uh, still have the same roots. Uh, they come up, came from the same language family. Uh, although we cannot understand each other, unfortunately, uh, it's not like Spanish and Italian people speaking to each other. Uh, but of course, if a Latvian decides to learn Lithuanian or a Lithuanian decides to learn Latvian, it's uh, much easier to pick it up. Mm-hmm. And you must be having really cold winters because you're so cold close to the. North Pole and the Arctic Circles, and it's quite yeah. chilly. I would say it's quite chilly. It's not as extreme as in Finland, but we get up to like minus twenty, minus twenty-five Celsius. Minus twenty-five is like the most extreme, I guess. And uh, we get uh, quite a bit of snow, uh, which is uh, which is fun. We have all the four seasons: so uh, spring, summer, fall, and winter. Uh, and uh, but As you have said, in the winter it gets quite chilly. Hmm. 
We have three seasons. Which one is missing? Is it the winter? No. Winter, summer and monsoon. Ah. <laughs> yeah. How long does the monsoon seasons last? Four months. So all the seasons, we count it as four months. Right. So four months of summer, four monsoon and four, four winter. So monsoon is, I, I guess, a very tropical thing or I don't know if it's just an Indian thing or South Asian, but it just rains. It just rains for the four months continuously. Yeah, I heard that in the Southeastern Asian countries, it's the same. Uh, mm. Any country, I guess, in the tropical region. And uh, I can't imagine, what do you do for those four months? So it, it's not like London, like unpredictable rain any day or every day. But it is predictable rain. And we it's not that, I mean, it's fun. It's very, It gets very windy. <laughs> uh, we love the rains the fragrance of the ground that comes and yeah. uh, we get to have this uh, bhajiyas or pakoras that, that we eat during monsoon. It tastes amazing. So yeah, that's nice. what we do. Cool. Have, you know, we are going to talk about Sanskrit today. And just before mm-hmm. that, I wanted to ask you, what is one thing you love the most about your country? Hmm. The one thing that I love the most, I think uh, nature wins over everything because uh, one third of the country is forested. Uh, it has many lakes. Uh, we do have a little bit of a coastal line, so we have access to the Baltic Sea. And uh, that small enclave of lands called the uh, Coronian Spits, uh, which is uh, probably one of my favorite destinations to go in Lithuania. There are small cities called Yuatkrant and Nida, and it's a UNESCO-recognized uh, nature reserve. So Let's it's a it really lovely the, place. Show the audience. Where are, where are these? So if you zoom in into Lithuania and you go to the, uh, to the west side where you can see the Baltic Sea, and if you zoom in, you will see our coastal town, the third largest town called Klaipeda. And if you go a little bit uh, lower, you will see this. Now you can start seeing a piece of land that is separated from the, it's like a very thin line. Mm, this one. Yeah, here. Yeah, so uh, on the right side, there is a lagoon. Uh, so it's a man-made uh, water reservoir. And on the left side, you can see uh, the Baltic Sea. And if you go lower, you will start seeing small towns. So mm. if you go all the way, all the way to, to the bottom, uh, there is going to be a line that, celebrate, uh, that uh, separates. Uh, yes, so you can see the line that separates the part of, which is uh, Kaliningrad. So we are already in the Russian enclave. And uh, yeah, if you, if you zoom in just by the line there, uh, yeah. A, li- a little bit in the middle here. And if you press on Nida, that small town here. So this is probably my my and many Lithuanians' favorite holiday destination to go on. It's right. a small town and it has uh, a very lovely dunes which are still moving and uh, they have to be protected. Dunes? Uh, because it's dunes, yeah. If you go a little bit upper... 
uh, you you will start seeing the dunes a little bit more. What do you mean by dunes? Like I know sand dunes. <laughs> exactly. So there's sand dunes in the in this yeah. region. Yeah, it's also UNESCO. That's why the region is also part of the UNESCO heritage site because uh, uh, it has uh, moving and very. I forget the Lithuanian, the English name. Uh, yeah, just fragile. In Lithuanian. Sorry. Fra fragile, fragile dunes. Fragile, yeah. but where are so, they? I cannot still see them, and I'm really surprised if, to find dunes <laughs> in middle of such a green country. If you will zoom out a little bit, you you could do do a little bit of a zoom out, and you will start seeing it on the left actually. Ah, these here, here they are. Yes. Uh, oh. So. So you can actually add into uh, the search, Google search, Nida Dunes, and you will see the pictures, uh, not from a satellite, but just man, uh, people made pictures. Mm -hmm. So if you add Nida Dunes, it's gonna probably pop out. So, okay. so it's a, it's an, yeah, it's very they actually odd. actually look like, so it's like a beach with a lot of sand. <laughs> Well, if you would uh, go back a little bit to the last page that you were on, and one more time back, I saw very good pictures. The fourth picture uh, from the top, yeah. So, so Anna, this is actually not Lithuania, unfortunately. <laughs> we don't have mountains. That's a, a part of our landscape that we uh, do not have. So anyways, it's just an interesting location to visit. And I always encourage people that come to Lithuania, if they have the time uh, to go to Klaipeda, uh, take the mm -hmm. ferry uh, to the Koronian Spits. And uh, it feels like you enter another world, at least mm -hmm. for Lithuanians. The nature <laughs> is different. Uh, the smell is different. The trees are different. And the people are also more relaxed. Mm -hmm. So it's the closest... Uh, to what we have in responses like a, uh, like a Lithuanian islands. One more question. Of... Is this water sure. which is separated, is this fresh water or salt water, this one inside? Uh, it should be fresh water, um, as, I, as far as I know. Hmm. Uh, but I could be mistaken. I would have to check it out. And as we are in this region, I also had this curiosity... Yes. How just how the the Russia? Let me show it on the political map. Yes. Russia is here. How does Russia still have this piece of land? Well, this part of land was given to Russia after the Second World War. Uh, so it the area of this uh, land as well the area of Klaipeda, it's uh, a little bit historically confusing. Uh, because it was part of the Teutonic Order, like in the 13th century. And uh, later on, it was uh, part of Prussia, which no longer exists. Hmm. And uh, I'm, I might be actually, I might be wrong. It might be not after the First World War. But uh, when, the, when the Germans uh, lost the First World War, uh, this part uh, was given away to the Soviet, uh, to... to this part was given away to the Russian Empire, mm -hmm. or or it was given away after the Second World War. But uh, so even it was then, just a treaty US, signed. 
USSR still broke down in the late 1980s. So this was much before that. And these states got independence, but this one didn't claim independence. Well, Why? The, because it did not belong to Lithuania and it did not belong to Poland. So it kind of remains as part of the Russian Federation. So uh, because Prussia, which ah. Prussia, which no longer exists, uh, could not claim it back. We could say mm. so. So it kind of just remained as a piece mm. of land given to the former Soviet Union uh, after signing the Treaty of Versailles. Mm. So it becomes a very strategic location for uh, Russia, right? Yes, it, yes, it is actually, and. Uh, and that's why in the beginning of the Russo-Ukrainian war, uh, we had uh, restricted uh, the movement of the trains because you never know what's inside the trains. And we do have mm. a lot of history with occupations. So we, we don't really fancy uh, these things happening through and the lands. Lithuania is the first country to get independence, I've heard, read from USSR. <laughs> Yeah, it was actually a very nice uh, occasion because uh, uh, it was called the Baltic Way as well. It it was uh, done in 1989, so it was a peaceful protest where people hold hands, uh, people held hands all the way from Tallinn, the Estonian capital, to Vilnius. So it was over 600 kilometers of people holding hands, uh, wow. expressing uh, unity and uh, expressing their wish not to be part of the Soviet Union and to declare independence. And after a year in 1990, uh, finally, we have regained our independence. And uh, although the Russian military remained for a year or, or, or actually a few years, but yeah, officially, uh, it had, uh, the free Baltic states claimed independence in 1990. Wow. When did okay? So, coming to languages, sure. I discovered this through your video for the first time last week that Lithuanian <laughs> is very similar to Sanskrit. <laughs> when did you discover it, and how was your reaction? Actually, I heard it first time when I was a teen, probably, and uh, I don't remember the source. It was just a thing that was floating through the air. And uh, I, the first time I heard that, I was thinking like, oh, that's just so odd. Uh, but because uh, of my interest in uh, cultures and religions and so on, it wasn't as odd as it might be for other people because uh, I know that uh, the Baltic, pre-Christian uh, Baltic religions, the pagan religions are quite similar to to Hinduism. But that's not... Uh, that's not anything uh, very surprising because if you look into Nordic mythology, if you look into Germanic mythology, also Slavic and Baltic, uh, they do share a lot of uh, common commonalities with uh, Hinduism. Maybe because uh, of the Proto-Indo-European language family and the groups, I am not so certain why, uh, but Hinduism definitely has maintained uh, its way of life and uh, Lithuanians, uh, other countries have exchanged it into the Abrahamic religions. Can uh, you give an is... example of how on the similarities you're talking about the culture? 
do you mean in terms of uh, the religious aspect, the language aspect, or just in general? Cultural aspect, you mentioned the pagan religions or those communities have traditions which are similar to Hinduism. Yeah, well, to for starters, uh, the pantheon is a little bit similar because uh, we have one of the supreme deities, Perkunas, and Perkunas is quite, kind of like the equivalent of Indra. So he is a, a god of thunder and lightning, have, holding a hammer, something like Thor as well from the Nordic mythology. Uh, we have uh, Devas, so Devas in Sanskrit. It's the same word as the supreme deity, as well like the creator of uh, the skies, we could say. And uh, at the same time, um, we held nature sacred, so different mm. kind of uh, aspects. And, and death by fire, so if a person is most of the time in the old days, people were burned because they felt like it was purifying their souls, so to say. And I know that that's a common aspect of uh, burial practices in India as well. At least it, I don't know if it is now, but it has been. Yeah. And also fire, uh, fire in Sanskrit, I know it's Agnes and mm. in Lithuanian it's Ugnes. So it's, it's also the same, or oh, at least a very similar words. So different kind of ritual practices, uh, offerings as well, uh, making offerings to the gods, uh, making offerings uh, to the nature. So it was uh, kind of believed. Also, I don't know if it's the same in some uh, Hindu uh, rituals, okay. but, when, but when a person mm -hmm. is burned, at least in the old days, uh, Lithuanians believe that the smoke that goes to the heaven is like his uh, soul going into the Milky Way and uh, flying through the Milky Way and, you know, leaving to the afterlife. Uh, I do not know if it's uh, similar in Hinduism, so though. The, still, all Hindus all over the world practice that, cremation by fire. Uh, it is, I don't know about the belief of smoke rising and going into the galaxy, but what I have learned and observed and talked to my family and other religious leaders is, the belief that we come from five elements, uh, fire, earth, water, ether, and air, wind. So burning or this kind of cremation gets those all elements back. So your body is made by these five elements. And by that process of fire, you're going back to them. So you go back into the air and ether. And whatever the remains are, the ashes and bones are, how do you say, uh, put into water, into flowing water like river. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. That's interesting, yeah. It keeps the cycle of the nature. <laughs> yeah, and like uh, in the old days, it was actually also cruel, but, you know, you cannot judge uh, previous people from your current standards because the life was very different. Uh, but uh, if, uh, let's say, some kind of a lord or a uh, some kind of a well-known person died. If he was a warrior, most of the time he would be cremated with his horse uh, together. So he would have the horse in the afterlife as well. And uh, also with his uh, servants. So like uh, his uh, number one servant or even a couple of servants. Also with uh, his most luxurious things, everything would be put into his... Uh, 
his death place. So, so, so he all, could, uh, yeah. All the horse and the servants you mentioned were burnt alive. Uh, not. I'm not certain if they were burned alive. If they were made as a sacrifice before, if they if they killed themselves or someone else did the bidi. Uh, on those details, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, but the fact that uh, they were traveling with their lords into his afterlife, uh, that was uh, a fact. But it's also mm. similar to uh, Egyptian, uh, ancient Egyptian rituals of uh, death. So that that's, um, it might be worldwide, uh, maybe, maybe from like the peoples that lived before it uh, it's very interesting when you look into it because those are very different regions but the practices are very similar in india there was this practice which is no more legal or which is condemned but it was common in many many decades centuries ago it, it was called sati in which if the husband died before the wife the wife the wife had to mm-hmm sit on her his the wife had to sit on her husband's burning pyre really yeah wow uh and what uh in which day and age was that when was it declared illegal 100 years back all right okay 100 years back or maybe after india's independence i'm not exactly sure but mm-hmm. quite recently on the scale of the time civilization time scale so right. yeah i mean personally speaking i was thinking of this because my recently my grandmother passed away and mm-hmm. i was looking at the fire and i was just discussing with my friends and family that this i mean to burn the whole body you need a lot of wood and you need a lot of inflammatory things like ghee which is saturated clarified butter or i don't know what what's key mm-hmm. called in english but yes. that and um ether ether there these balls or thing that we use in artis which are inflammatory mm-hmm. we call it kapoor so it's okay. it's white which which burns very quickly so all those things along with wood would we keep and that whole process takes 6 7 hours 8 hours for the whole thing to burn and become ashes overnight we we go back the next day and see what is left and what is not and those flames are huge i was just sitting there and thinking how what a torture it might have been for a live woman to sit on it right and yeah be burned like that so i was asking would i was asking them what do you think they were sedated or something because how can somebody bear uh, some pain like that but then the other arguments which came were that she knew it she was mentally prepared that this was going to happen probably that's why I didn't she didn't rebel and all that but well there are different kind of uh, things that seem extreme to us but probably not to the people who are actually engaging in them like uh, for example when people go to end their life in their old age by jumping off a mountain, which was a common practice in many, I think it's a, even still a practice in Indonesia in a certain certain town. And uh, yeah, thinking about uh, the Japanese uh, spirit of uh, dying for their lord, 
if they mistreated him in some kind of way or like what was happening in the Roman times of taking your life if you uh, disobeyed uh, the emperor. From our standpoint, it seems crazy and unthinkable in some ways, but uh, I guess their mindset, their mentality was uh, quite different from ours. And probably a lot of mental preparation was necessary mm -hmm. and we would experience the same pain, but uh, we definitely we would react to it in, in another manner. Another, another phenomenon which, was which would happen in Rajasthan, which is the western part of India, if the husband or the king loses a battle or they, the, the people at home know that he has lost a battle, losing mm -hmm. is dying. He might have died on the battlefield. All the important women in the family, all the palaces had this well where mm -hmm. they could burn it. A lot of wood were there and all these women would jump in the fire. Wow. All, all the whole community or the all the women would jump because they didn't want to be left behind and misused by the invaders which would come after them. So that's understandable because uh, there was a part uh, in Lithuanian history where a certain castle was sieged and uh, it was also a common practice that uh, the invaders let's say how uh, what happened to to the enclave uh, the Russian enclave that you were showing on the map before Kaliningradas in the old days like in the 13th century or so um it was part of the Lithuanian Empire, I believe, at that time. And uh, oh, I'm sorry, it was not part of the Lithuanian Empire. It was part uh, of Prussia. So it was one of the Baltic tribes that uh, went extinct uh, quite a long time ago, before before the Germanic uh, takeover. And uh, yeah, the, it was uh, a place where one of the Baltic tribes lived. And uh, when the crusade started, because crusades started not just uh, to the east, they started to the north as well to uh, convert the pagan tribes and pagan people. Uh, Russians were kind of occupied by the warrior monks, which were called uh, the Teut Teutonic Order. And one practice was also to kill all the men and uh, to impregnate all the women. So maybe that's conversion in their terms of the old times but uh, yeah that's how actually the Prussians disappeared so it was taken over and yeah when you look into history and you hear mm. these kind of stories and uh, when you the story that you told about the well and coming back to the castle so also uh, the people were sieged and they didn't want this destiny so uh, they also took their lives which is a common you know common topic romantic topic in some ways when we, that we learn in history. So pagans in the Baltic were cru converted by the crusaders who were Christian. But in terms of India, it was the more of the Islamic mm -hmm. uh, and Mughal emperors which were coming and trying to convert and doing all these things. Yeah, but you somehow you reacted so, to it differently. Like... Uh... Uh, you kind of took in part of the culture uh, by while retaining yours, which is a very interesting uh, thing that Hinduism in those areas seems like it was not destroyed, but the Islamic culture was 
incorporated into mm. the Indian tradition. So it's interesting. It became like some kind of a synthesis. And uh, I don't know how that happens, but it's a very interesting way to deal with um, foreign cultures or like aggressive invasions. It's beautiful to see, you know, all the religions of the world you can find in India and all are welcome. Anybody is allowed, everybody is allowed to follow their own beliefs and religion. They can even start their own or they are very, very free and the law protects them to follow whatever they want spiritually. Yeah. So, and I, it's very interesting to see that even the Islamic religion here has been influenced by the traditions and the festivals. So if beating drums or in the Indian style might not be where it originated from, right? Near Jerusalem or in, in the in the Middle East. But being in India for such a long time, they celebrate their own festivals, but in in the Indian it has the Indian flavor to them. I I observed this during uh, Moharam a couple of days ago. So in in my region, there's a practice about um, carrying the deity on your head for long distances and having these march sort of thing. And I was seeing that being done uh, with the Islamic figure also. But anyways, they don't believe in statues or anything. But it was interesting to see that he, he actually carrying something on top. I couldn't see the details because it was, it was covered with uh, all the garlands and all that. But he was carrying on his head and they were doing similar things to... It's it's very interesting to see that. And coming back to your region and um, people there, how did... When did people started accepting Christianity and are they still somebody who practices other religions there? Well, Lithuania was uh, the last... European country to be uh, turned into a Christian country uh, and uh, it happened in the 14th century so there was actually um, the problem was that while the whole Europe is Christian also uh, the Muscovy uh, has because there was no Russian Empire at that time there was uh, Muscovy which is Kingdom of Moscow has taken uh, Orthodox religion from uh, Constantinopolis of the time. Uh, we had a lot of we, we had a lot to think about because from one side there's the Catholics, from other sides there's the Orthodox, and being the only pagan country or a pagan empire at at the time uh, was not very politically strategic because we had a lot of pressure. Uh, but maybe because of the reason that uh, we uh, were having more trouble with the Muscovy in that time, uh, we decided to take uh, the Catholic faith uh, as a political move more than a uh, um, conversion of sorts. Because uh, only the elites, so to say, took Christianity, but, you know, the people just continue their old ways of life because probably even the news that uh, the religion has changed did not reach them. They didn't have internet. <laughs> so may, maybe a pigeon flew somewhere, but you know you don't have enough pigeons to tell everyone. And uh, yeah, so it happened in the 14th century. It was more of a political move than a 
you know, change of hearts. Mm -hmm. And uh, only the ruling elites of the times were actually uh, on paper converted to Catholicism. Um, of course, with time, it changed. And uh, now it's a Catholic country, predominantly. And uh, one of the main reasons probably because um, when we were trying to escape the Soviet rule, uh, because um, communism predominantly is an atheistic ideology, mm. uh, we were leaning on the Christian faith, the Catholic faith, uh, as a type of national identity, we could say. So differently from many European countries which are becoming more secular, so the Christianity is kind of decreasing, in Poland and Lithuania, it's actually sort of rising, but in another way. So, so it's a very, very interesting uh, phenomenon happening in, in these areas. Just a side note for all the people you mentioned, Prussia, right? So, uh, yeah. Prussia is different from Russia and Persia. Let me let me pull up the yeah. screen and show the audience. So, this region. I mean, it's mainly Germany, right? So this region was Russia. And, uh, it was a little bit smaller, actually. Smaller? It was more like, it was uh, in the northwest, in the northeast, I'm sorry, where now it's Kaliningrad and a little bit, uh, it, although it was a little bit bigger. So it was uh, in the old days, like the 12th, 11th century, it was just a Baltic tribe. Then after the Teutonic, takeover in the 13th century it became mainly germanic and uh, then it became into prussia which was uh, one of the kingdoms of the, the holy roman empire because it mm -hmm. was like the holy roman empire was made of like 100 something kingdoms and it mm -hmm. was very small kingdoms um and prussia was the one to unite uh, germany and uh, so, so it was kind of um, the unifying kingdom under which Germany was united as we know it. And it formed the First Reich, which later on went into the First World War. So, so, so yeah, it came under, uh, it came, how to say, hmm. it, has a, it has a rich history and it was the leading force to unite uh, the Germanic kingdoms. Hmm. But previously, it was uh, before the 13th century, it was just other people um, just uh, living their lives. But the name, uh, the people changed, the culture changed, the name remained. The, you mentioned about similarities between Sanskrit and Lithuanian and the cultures being similar. What is your approach to swastik? Swastik to symbol. Swaste. Yeah. Ah, it's the symbol of sun. Uh, we, we, we do have that uh, similar symbols in Lithuanian mythology as well. So it symbolizes the, the sun. I don't know if it's the same in the Hindu traditions. Wow, that's interesting. So when people started hitting um, the Nazi swastik, how did you react? How did the people of Lithuania react? Well, it's not a very common kind of a symbol. Uh, more, more of the times we just have like a, sort of a circle, which is uh, divided into 
six parts or like with snakes coming out outside of it. So it's uh, the most common symbol of the sun. So we don't have much uh, relationship to it. I know that uh, when the Nazis took the swastika, they took it from Hinduism and they appropriated it to themselves because, well, Hitler had uh, interesting ideas about Atlantis and like uh, um, Aryans and all kind of stuff. So, so, but Lithuania, I think, I think the, the symbol of the sun as it's in the swastik in the Hinduism, it's not a very common theme. Like I'm a, trying to pull up the Lithuania swastik. Let me see if I can find an image. But you asked me if it is a similar... because because hmm? now it's more like in the graveyards, you can see uh, the Christian symbol, which is the cross. Uh, but on the cross, there's the pagan symbol of the sun, the circle with some things coming out of it. So it's a, that that's also an interesting representation which shows kind of the mix that happened through the times of uh, different kind of symbolisms. Mm -hmm. So I might try to help you find it, but uh, if you do... So this is what I'm coming when I type uh, Lithuanian, huh? Lithuanian swastiks. So this um, is neo-Nazi. Well, no, it's probably, it's not related to like uh, Lithuania. It's more Germanic in this kind of a sense. Although if you come up a little bit up, you see that uh, interesting figure where there's the double cross? Uh, live, uh, light. Right, left, center. This one. Yeah, although it, uh, it was not in a red kind of, uh, uh, in the red font. Mm -hmm. So, so it, uh, it was actually what was most of the times on the shields of uh, Lithuanian warriors, like in the medieval times. And it's a double cross. It was uh, just a symbolism that they used. And on the right side, a little bit downwards, you can see that there's like three pillars uh, more, more right a little bit here. Uh, so it was, uh, this was the sign of, uh, one of, uh, but as you can see, it's actually German. So most of these symbolisms is, uh, probably coming from Germany or it's, uh, somehow connected to mm -hmm. the occupation that we had because we were occupied by Germany for mm -hmm. like. I think a year, a little bit more, maybe. So, so, so it could be that uh, it's the German way of trying to incorporate Lithuania into their Third Reich at the time. So maybe that's where these most of these photos are coming from. So the one on the left is Hindu. You can yeah. easily identify the Hindu symbol because it has dots within the cross. Hmm. What do the dots symbolize? Uh, and it's usually red background on this. So what, as per what I know, whatever little I mm -hmm. know, it is, it divides the nature in four parts and these are the different elements. Uh, right. Okay. So it's more like uh, seasons represented in the, in yeah. the, in the, yeah. And you know, you'll find this interesting. We had this guest from Iran. She was telling me that this is even a very common symbol in Iran. It was the, really? and this is how it is related to you because this was the wheel 
of the god of sun so you said mm. this represents the sun and lithuania right so it is the wheels ah. of sun in iran uh, actually i went into that the go and i also added the word sun symbol lithuania and there i received a better imagery which is not connected to the nazi mm. leftovers <laughs> <laughs> so so if you would add sun symbol lithuania let's see what kind of uh, symbolism we would get there so the one on the left uh, it's a good representation this although one? yes although most of the time in the center there will not be those three pillars which represent uh, the ruling family of Gedimenaichi in like the 13th and 14th and 15th no mm-hmm. more like 14th and 15th century so we wouldn't have that uh but the sun symbol it's more like this mm. and you you can actually see it in many locations uh, in Lithuania where they are carved on wood because uh, we do have a lot of wooden sculptures and uh, this is predominantly from the pagan times mm. so so this is more like the Lithuanian equivalent of the swastik coming from India mm. which is a, a little bit different uh, as you can see a location which is called um the hill of the witches uh, which is in the same Kronian spit that we were talking about before the small piece of land separated by the by the lagoon that we were discussing Mm-hmm. and uh, there you can see probably the biggest accumulation of wooden sculptures uh, representing the pre-christian lithuanian tradition so mm-hmm. it's, it's literally called ragnukalnas uh, which in english is translated the hill of the witches and i think it was believed that it was like the gathering points of the witches flying from different kind of locations in the old days these images yeah, right is, yeah so so they represent different kind of aspects of lithuanian folklore so different kind of imps and uh, most of the time they are not like evil but they are like tricky tricksters you can see that they mm. have horns but they are laughing and like making fun of you so it's like the the spirits uh playing you could say so so that's a common thing yeah for a culture of Lithuania there was another thing that came up this witch festival the burning some sort of ah yeah ushgavenas yeah it's uh, in the old days uh, it was celebrated to ward off evil spirits uh, in the changing of seasons uh, now we celebrate it more as like we're trying to ward off the winter so <sighs> it's a, a seasonal celebration when we want to scare the winter so the spring would come sooner so it's at the turning point of seasons and we do bake uh, we eat pancakes on that day everyone bakes pancakes because the pancake symbolizes the sun so mm. everyone eats pancakes and uh, wants the the sun to return quicker so so that's a common lithuanian uh, festival or celebration which is definitely Uh, pre-Christian in origin. We have this question for all the guests: Which is your favorite traditional or cultural festival of your country? That's a good question to ask. We have one more, uh, which is called Yoninas. So it's a 
It's basically can you spell it? a or maybe type yes. it in the chat box. Uh, I can spell it to you. It's J. Uh, J is uh, my surname. Uh, o N I N E S S. So Yoninis. Uh, you can actually add the word Lithuania and maybe then we'll get some more pictures of the celebration. So it's okay. That's odd. Basically that celebration is, uh, the summer solstice. So uh -huh. it's, uh, when it's the longest day and the shortest nights. So we also celebrate with uh, huge bonfires and uh, everyone's in the nature. There's concerts, there's singing, there's dancing. So we're like uh, having fun. Me? Let, let me, let me show it to the audience. Just a sec. So I'll find the chat. Here it is. Yeah. I think you should have received the message. Yes. This one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So here you can see the Lithuanian traditional dresses. Uh, so most of the ladies are wearing oak leaves on the head and flower kind of uh, crowns. Mm. Uh, these are like the traditional folk clothes, at least as how we understand it now. I don't know if they actually were like that uh, centuries yeah. ago, but uh, this is like uh, our interpretation of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, most of the time we're just like uh, somewhere in nature, making huge bonfires at night, uh, celebrating the longest uh, day and looking for a specific ring or a, we, we call it Paparcho Giedas. Uh, I do not know how uh, the plant is called in English, uh, but we're, we spend time looking for that specific plant's uh, flower, we could say. Uh, which does not exist, but uh, in the myth it exists and it gives you like huge luck uh, if you find it and, and you, you, and huge luck and love. So, so it's a, just a fun, fun kind of a, a thing that uh, mainly older people tell for the kids to get them excited. And then the kids like go like, oh, we have to try to find it. So yeah, it's like a small aspect, which is quite entertaining. I found uh, some ladies wearing that unexisting flower. Nah, it's a little bit different. <laughs> I can I can actually type it to you. Uh, the the plant. So the plant is called like this, and uh, I think it's called fern blossom in English, if I am correct. It's called fern blossom. So that is that's what we are trying to find. So the plant is fern. And the Giadas is a blossom. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have a flower. The ferns don't have flowers, right? No, no, they don't. But, uh, uh, but in the mythology, it's like uh, during that night, uh, it uh, makes a blossom somewhere, and you need to find it. Like that's <sighs> the that that's the idea. Like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So, so yeah. We saw the traditional dresses and cultural events. What is one wedding ritual which is very peculiar or what is one wed wedding ritual that only happens in your country? Well, that's a good question. I don't know. You, you see, I'm not married, so I'm not an expert on the topic. <laughs> uh, and most of the weddings 
uh, nowadays are uh, Christian kind of weddings. But some people, even some people I know, uh, want to find uh, uh, the old way of marriage. So uh, they, they get married in a Romova way. So Romova is like the renewed pagan religion of Lithuania. And uh, they find a Vedila. So Vedila is like a priest of the Romova religion. And uh, they go to a sacred place, which is most of the time called an Alcas, and uh, which is uh, marked by some positive energy or something, natural energy, something like that. It's a good natural place. And they do certain rituals uh, to bond the two people. Uh, I'm not certain because I have never went uh, into such a celebration myself, so I haven't experienced it. But there's a lot of singing, so... Lithuania has a certain style of singing polyphonic melodies, which we call sutertines. So like uh, people sing in different kind of pitches, which creates a polyphonic tone. And uh, it uh, actually hits you somewhere in the heart, uh, which is a very interesting experience. So they, they sing these polyphonic melodies and uh, make offerings, maybe some kind of, they may be... Uh, uh, I don't know if they are abstract or physical. They burn something. I, I don't think that they do it nowadays. But So that's one interesting way of how to get married in Lithuania. I found this picture. What do you think is happening here? And it, this is the wedding ritual of Lithuania. That's a good, that's a good question. Uh, unfortunately, I could not tell you that. Uh, <laughs> I'm not certain what's happening there, but... Uh, they're carrying flowers, some kind of a flowers. Maybe that uh, symbolizes like youth mm. uh, or maybe a new beginning. Um, I could not be 100% sure. So it's basically it's, they're carrying these ropes and everybody has a cloth with the others. So yeah, that's interesting to see. And I was seeing for some more cultural dresses. So this is what I found. Yeah, the, uh, most of the dresses are made out of linen. If that's correct, translation of the word linus in Lithuanian is a certain material that grew in abundance in Lithuania. So that is the material of the traditional dresses most of the time. And you can see different kind of um, different kind of uh, ornaments. So just like similarly like in, in Ireland, uh, different family had a different ornaments. So it's here you can also see like different kind of groups of people having different kind of ornaments on the dresses. And mm -hmm. uh, most of the time they're very colorful and uh, quite fun to observe. Mm. So it's and also like shows the, the line of your heritage in, and mm -hmm. your ancestry in some ways. And is tap dance a common thing? In, are, they, do, are they tap dancing or? <laughs> no, they're they're not tap dancing. Uh, yeah, it's a common thing. Uh, uh, different kind of traditional dances. I remember as a kid, uh, I was forced to go by my parents to participate in these uh, traditional dances. I had no idea what the hell is going on, uh, but uh, I kind of enjoyed it because I felt like connected to the group of people with whom I was involved. Uh, but I think this is also common in different kind of Slavic regions too, like in Ukraine and elsewhere. So, so, so it's not predominantly Baltic. Mm -hmm. 
in this kind of a sense, uh, but it's more like of uh, the the regional thing of mm-hmm. uh, in terms of like the geography, the geographical so, region. Talking again about geography, can you tell us where exactly Slavic is this and Nordic and Baltic? What are the differentiations in the Europe and this region of the world? Well, there's basically like the only existing Baltic countries are Latvia and Lithuania. So we have, well, I'm sorry, also like a Baltic country would be Estonia, although they don't have a Baltic language. So that would be the Baltic region. And uh, most of the other countries are Slavic and they're separated into Eastern Slavic, uh, Southern Slavic. So Eastern Slavic countries are Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then uh, all the areas in the Balkans, like uh, Macedonia, Bulgaria, uh, those countries are Southern Slavic. And there's also another branch of uh, Slavic, uh, which I don't remember in terms of languages, how it's called, but uh, it's Poland. I think it's Western Slavic, if I'm correct. So that is Poland, that is uh, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Slovenia. So they belong to the same group, which is united under the Slavic umbrella, but also they have around the first century uh, CE, they started differentiating in terms of language. Mm -hmm. Uh, So although uh, Bulgarians still speak Slavic and use the old Slavic scripts, uh, so... Only Only uh, Bulgarians use old Slavic script, is is that what you're saying? Uh, no, no. Uh, it, it's. Uh, I just wanted to say that even though they use the same script, uh, and it still belongs to a different branch of the Slavic languages. Although the good thing is that if you know one Slavic language, uh, you can kind of understand the other Slavic languages. Mm-hmm. Not fully, definitely not, but you have the main idea. So some words, mm-hmm. of course, are different. But it really helps to learn, just like you learn one Romantic language, uh, say it is Sp- it's Spanish or, I don't know, Italian, uh, even French, and it helps you understand uh, other Romantic languages. Mm. Uh, with Lithuanian uh, and Latvian languages, we don't have this uh, kind of uh, joy and liberty. Mm. Uh, we, we might understand each other better, but uh, if I, you see my grandparents lived near the Polish border and uh, sometimes we would cross cross the border and go to Poland and I was shocked that I cannot understand anything uh, because it's a Slavic language although after I started learning Russian uh, now when I go to Poland I can understand a little bit more and uh, that that's the that's also what makes I guess the Baltic languages unique in some ways, because it shows the difference, but it also like restricts them. So from very early um, years, we start learning foreign languages. And I think we start learning English as a mandatory language since we are like around eight, since the second grade. And when we're in the second grade, so we're around like 13, 14, we start learning a third uh, language. So the second foreign language, which we can choose from various languages. How many languages do you speak? Because we have to. Uh, I speak Lithuanian and English on, I would say, maybe on a native level. Uh, Of course, I'm not a native English speaker, 
but but uh, my my language has kind of reached a similar level i believe mm -hmm. and then uh, i do speak russian and portuguese uh but uh, my portuguese is still in the beginning stages i have been only learning for a year i i can have regular conversations but you know uh -huh. and so and my russian is b1 b1 we have this activity where we'll do with you as well so can you please close your eyes for us think of your favorite memory uh -huh. and describe to us in your own language shesukal nuasa ganetni shalta apsrengas shiltai irasudasai pavargas tačiau noriu pasiekti kalno viršūnę ir po 4 valandų kopimo pasikiau vietą kurią norėjau pasiekti esu debesyse ir pro debesis matau apačioje esantį ežerą ir jaučiuos labai laimingas kad pavyko nukeliauti ten kur norėjau ir pasiekti savo kelionės tikslą I think I said that I was in the mountains and uh, I wanted to climb one specific mountain. I didn't say in which region though. And uh, it was kind of cold and I was tired. Uh, but after a few hours of climbing, I finally reached the point where I wanted to go. And through the clouds, I could see the lakes uh, downwards. And I was just uh, very satisfied uh, with the scenery and the sensation of being there. Mm. You as a language expert must be will be interested in this. I'm going and talking to people in each and every country of the world. And by the end of this, we'll have a record of the sounds of all languages. That Wow, that's that's yeah. awesome. That's crazy. Yeah. So it was very interesting to hear the sound of uh, Lithuanian today. I was trying to thinking hard of hearing some Sanskrit words. I, I don't know Sanskrit. I mean, I just hear them in shlokas or mantras when they're playing around. Like I can identify this is Sanskrit, but I don't speak it or read or write it. Uh, so, yeah, it is, it is different. It's not even like European languages or it's a bit like Russian, a little bit, but not like German or Italian or French. Yeah, we, we do have a little bit uh, of that kind of a sound. Well, mainly I think it's because in the 18th century, uh, the Lithuanian Polish Commonwealth, which, uh, so, so Lithuania and Poland, uh, the two kingdoms merged in the 16th century. And, uh, but at the end of the 18th century, it got divided and parts of it went to the Russian Empire, parts of it went to Austria and part of it went to Prussia of that time. And since the end of the 18th century, we were under the Russian Empire. And uh, only like there was a brief, brief period of time uh, after the First World War, so from 1918 to 1940, when we declared like uh, autonomy. But uh, for like over 200 years, uh, we were living uh, under the Russian mm -hmm. Federation and later on under the Soviet Union. So that I believe that the pronunciation, yes, the pronunciation definitely, and 
also specifically because Lithuanian language was banned. So you could not use publicly the language, you should oh. use uh, the Russian language. So we also have a very big uh, and long history of book smuggling into the country from Lithuania minor. Uh, so a region in the a region in the west of Lithuania. And uh, there was a lot of underground publications where people wrote uh, newspapers in Lithuania and they kept the language al alive underground, so to say. But wow. of course, like through these kind of uh, ways of trying to eradicate the language, uh, it did, uh, I think the pronunciation changed. Uh, maybe not significantly, significantly, but quite, at least. Mm -hmm. And what are the words that you think are similar to Sanskrit? Well, there are a few identical words. Uh, some of them are question words. So in Lithuanian, when we want to ask who or what, we ask kas. Uh, in Sanskrit, I do not know the exact pronunciation. I think it's called kash. Uh, when is kada. Uh, in Sanskrit, it's also kada. Um, avis is a sheep. In Sanskrit, avis is also a sheep. There's uh, other words also like dievas. So that's God and mm. devas in Sanskrit. Uh, there, there's quite a numerous of words. And actually, in a couple of weeks of time, I will yeah. collaborate with a Sanskrit speaker on Bakdor uh, Alast's uh, YouTube channel. And uh, we will play a game uh, with her. So she will tell me a word in Sanskrit. I'll tell her a word in Lithuania and we'll try to guess. So I don't mm. want to tell too many words uh, because it might yeah. spoil the fun. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, that'll be quite interesting to see. Uh, stay tuned, guys. Follow his channel. I'll mention in description. In two weeks, right? Okay, let's do it. Yeah. And what is your favorite food? Uh, favorite food in general or a favorite in... food from Lithuanian cuisine? Lithuania. Lithuanian cuisine. Well, actually... Since uh, I and my girlfriend have been living uh, almost for a year abroad in Portugal, uh, we started missing the local food more than when we were in Lithuania because it was easily accessible. So it actually helps the question. Uh, and what we are mainly missing is uh, our cold beetroot soup. So it's actually, it's an odd soup. It's like borscht, which is... A beetroot soup that many regions like Ukraine, let's say, has, but it's a with a Lithuanian twist, and we eat it in the summer when it's hot, because it's it's a cold soup, uh, which is very refreshing. I'll type you the name uh, of it here. See, for me, a soup is always hot. So, isn't a cold soup a juice? Like it can be a beetroot juice, right? Not really, because uh, we use kefir, uh, kefir, I think in English. So it's a, something similar to a very thick yogurt to make this uh, the soup. And it uh, the texture of it is uh, much more thick. It's almost uh, as thick as certain curries in India. So 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 the, the thickness of it is a little bit different. And we also eat it with hot potatoes on the side. Mm. And uh, so that's the warm aspect. Uh, some people put an egg inside as well. And most of people, the foreigners get scared by the pink color. <laughs> <sighs> but it's mainly, 
because it's connection, it, it's combined beetroot and kefir, then uh, it turns like this way, uh, which is actually quite so fun. Uh, it's a fun picture, at least for me. Yeah. So, so this is this is quite true. This is quite native to to our region. Uh, I don't know if any other countries see this kind of soup. So, if anyone's in Lithuania during the summertime, I really encourage to try it out. Um, of course. What? What is I this? Also... Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Uh huh. Yeah, this one. I wanted just to say that. Uh, Ah, these ones, they are called cepeline. So they're actually potato dumplings, uh, big potato dumplings, which is most of the time eaten with sour cream on the side. As you can see, there's something white there. And uh, some uh, some meat uh, parts on the top. And most of the time, these potato dumplings are filled either with uh, meat, with curd, or if you want to go vegetarian, then they will be filled with mushrooms, which is my uh, favorite form of eating these cepelini. And uh, yeah, m most of the time, if you go to Lithuania and you want to eat something local from current day and age, uh, they will probably recommend you to try out cepelini. Mm. But uh, I would, yeah, so that's uh, the ones that is filled with, with meat. Uh, but I would like to bring some caution uh, because if you eat two or if you manage to eat three you will be very very full oh it's very very, very filling yeah it's heavy food uh but sometimes uh, to try it out so i wouldn't encourage to order cepeline order anything like another main dish like uh, eating some soup uh, eating cepeline and if you have space trying a dessert uh, that could be definitely sufficient and, and you said potato dumplings so the cover is yes. a potato yeah it's a there's a way how to make this kind of uh, dough and i remember my grandmother uh, in the countryside would spend at least a couple of hours made, making that dough of potatoes and then an extra hour or so mm. cooking it so she would start making it in early morning and finish like uh, somewhere around noon. And the mm. whole family would be very fond and happy of that. So it's, this is fried or uh, boiled? It's boiled. Very interesting. And you were saying something else before I before we talked about Sepulene. Uh, yeah, the second thing that uh, I kind of miss uh, from Lithuania, it's not a specific dish. It's more like a specific food, which is buckwheat. So I don't know if uh, people uh, in the south, uh, in the southern Asian region, eat uh, buckwheat. buckwheat. I think I think rice is more of a popular grain that people eat, at least in Asia. Uh, in um, Somewhere in like in the middle of Eurasia, also like in the territories of uh, Ukraine and, and Russia, uh, they grow a specific plant, which is called buckwheat. And uh, also like in Macedonia, no, sorry, in Moldova, it's a very popular dish. So this grain is definitely quite regional and um, you will not find it uh, while you're traveling to many places, like in the supermarkets. You can go to like specific shops to to buy buckwheat, and we fortunately we found one in uh, in Portugal, 
but mm. but yeah, uh, it's it's a very nice like it's a kind of a porridge that we make, or it's like a side uh, on a, another kind of plate that we bake. It's a little bit more nutritious than uh, let's say rice in, in certain ways, so it has quite a lot of magnesium inside of it, and it, just the taste, uh, it's quite. Uh, I love rice. I mean, like it's one of the best things to eat on the side. Uh, but uh, sometimes you want to mix it up. So that's what I was missing also. So this is buckwheat. I'm I'm hearing yes. of this for the first time. Yes, it is a buckwheat. Uh, so that's how it looks in the seed form. And if you will add buckwheat plant, uh, you can see how it looks uh, when it's growing. So sometimes in Lithuania, driving by, you can see wild buckwheat uh, growing. Also, we have uh, specific agricultural fields dedicated to grow it. So the plant would look something like that. Uh, also, it has a reddish color when you're driving past pass by. So, so yeah, it's something like wheat. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's just a different kind of a grain. So you said uh, rice, right? We all, we have rice, but our meals are of two uh, grains. So wheat also and rice. So we <laughs> make flatbreads or chapatis as we call it here, roti chapati. Yes. And then the rice is the second half. So meals are split yeah. into half. One is chapati and sabji, which is vegetable. And the second half is uh, rice and dal. Dal is a, like a lentil soup. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's a good meal. <laughs> so buckwheat, um, millets and buckwheats. I'm pretty sure there must be an Indian variation of this because when we are talking at home, we don't use the English words, right? So I don't know what sure. my mom would call this. She can identify from the shape, but I don't know what, what is the name. So yeah, if well, uh, it- the listeners know, do come, drop it in the comments. <laughs> Yeah, and if you will, uh, if your mother or someone else will tell you, uh, please send me a message. I'm also curious to know how it's, if it uh, exists in Indian cuisine and the name of it would also be interesting to know. I found one more thing which is on the internet is your cakes, which look like trees. Yeah, yeah, that's also like a traditional dessert that we that we eat uh, during during different kind of celebrations, so it's called shakotas in Lithuanian. And uh, yeah, it's it's a very delicious uh, meal and it does look like a tree. So shaka <laughs> in Lithuanian is called, it means a branch. So shakotas, it's like branchy. And so, uh, maybe translated to English somehow. And uh, it does look like a tree. And you we know, also sh- have another one. Shaka. We also have shimtalapis. You mentioned shaka, right? So, shakar, yes. Yeah. Shakar means sugar in one of my languages. Ah, really? Uh, in Lithuanian, it's tsukrus. Yeah. <laughs> tsukrus. So, that so and, yeah, uh-huh. as you love languages, the have, I studied a bit of German. So, the name for mother uh, and saying no is same. It starts with N. No, negating something starts with N. So, we say uh-huh. na. Or nai. Yeah. And uh, for mother, it's uh, ma or amma. So, what do you call in Lithuanian? Oh, I think this is like extremely international. Uh, it's mama. Yeah. So, it's like a, but you can even find it in Chinese. 
so ma is also mother so this is probably one of the words that uh, almost most of the humanity share so mama and uh, so so that would be the lithuanian equivalent and what is negating something how do you say no uh, master, uh we just say na 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 yeah so that's the same uh cool very interesting and you said you were saying something there's another cake uh, or something yeah i i have uh, written the words uh, in the chat box so so that's shakotas uh, the one that you have shown is one of the traditional desserts and shimtalapis which is the one that i prefer is like another one mm -hmm. so it's also it's nice to try it out if someone decides to visit so what's the best time to visit definitely uh, summer Lithuania? uh i would say late spring summer yeah so some somewhere after may somewhere after may yeah because the weather is starting to get warmer uh the nature starts to blossom again so it's a uh, the nature is waking up and uh after the the winter rest so so definitely sometime after may and like the weather starts to get quite cooler at october then we in october we're starting to get quite a lot of rain as well so october and november is fairly rainy and uh, all the way from late november or december to let's say april it's uh, quite cold and also partly snowy if we get snow that year and what's the best activity that everybody must do uh during summertime any time like what activity would you recommend from lithuania well if you come uh during the winter time uh definitely taking uh sleds and going down the hills with sleds it's very fun we're not a very mountainous uh, country but we do have hills and uh the kids love doing it but also adults uh also find fun in the going sledding from the mountains so you it's like you sit on a certain thing uh, which slides very well and uh, then you just go down the hill through the snow it's uh, very entertaining i heard basketball is a second religion many people are very fond of basketball that is true uh, but we had better times in terms of like uh, the level of basketball uh, i i don't think that we're in the golden age of basketball at the moment uh, maybe we were like 20 years ago something like that uh, but it's still a very very popular um activity so many people enjoy watching it on the tv going to to the arenas to watch the games and uh, probably it's the most popular sports well not probably certainly it's the most pop popular sport in lithuania in your language how do you appreciate something uh if we want to say how beautiful we say kaip grazo uh if we want to um say thank you for something in in the act of appreci appreciation we say achu or achu labayachu yeah so mm -hmm. that that's like thank you and labayachu is like thanks a lot so so that's also 
uh, a sign of appreciation. We how have the you... word de. Uh huh. Go. I was asking, how would you appreciate an artwork or something, some object which is beautiful? We would say Cape Grajo or we would say Cape Nostabu. So Cape Nostabu is how wonderful and Cape Grajo is how beautiful. And what compliment can a man give to a woman? If you want to say you have beautiful eyes, you would say Kokas Grajas Tawakis. Also, if you want to say uh, I have never seen anyone as beautiful as you, we would say so that would be like for a lady at least. So that would be a compliment if you're praising the beauty of uh, of another person. Uh, but of course, there there would be some others, uh, other phrases to say when you're complimenting something else. Uh, and if someone is interested, they can text me and I'll text them back <laughs> telling it. I'm- why is it too slang? No, it's is like it censored. Uh, no, it's not. It's not. It's just. It. I believe it would just get quite long. Okay. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, I would like to admit this: that uh, many Lithuanian women complain that Lithuanian men don't give them enough compliments. So oh. maybe we're actually lacking the that side of us where we compliment each other because. Lithuanian, Lithuanians as people are fairly reserved and uh, they kind of keep, the, keep themselves to themselves. Uh, they oftentimes uh, don't watch in the other person's eyes for too long either. Uh, I would say that in general, on standard, this is definitely not uh, in all cases, but Lithuanian people are fairly suspicious of uh, not just of people from elsewhere, but of themselves as well. So, so, so maybe that kind of reserved side of the, of the people also connects with uh, lack of giving compliments one to another. If you had to improve one thing about your country, what would that be? I would definitely try to ban, uh, the cutting of forests and hunting because there were a lot of new regulations trying to be put in place like that hunters could uh, hunt with night goggles. So I hope that this one was not passed because, you know, if you're hunting during the day, at least let the animals have their life at night because most animals adapted to sleep during the day and to live during the night. So definitely I would try to avoid that. And also, uh, as I mentioned, one third of the country is forested. And uh, that's really lovely because when you drive around, uh, you get, you're going through, through the forest all the time. And uh, I wouldn't like that to disappear in the future. And unfortunately, our current uh, Minister of Environment uh, is selling off most of our fo- uh, forests to the Norwegian, to the Scandinavian countries. And uh, that's not cool. <laughs> I would like that to stop happening. <laughs> what is the first impression you get when I mention India? Well, most of it is uh, regarding religion. So, like, if I hear if I hear the word India, I immediately imagine a variety of colors, a variety of activities. Uh, it, it's definitely a colorful place, 
that has uh, a lot going on because, uh, but mainly it's because uh, probably I have researched quite a bit and I had a few friends from India as well, but uh, definitely colorfulness and uh, variety and uh, rituals, what comes to mind. Even the Lithuanian dress are very colorful and beautiful, as we just saw. Yeah, it's very interesting. If you could travel anywhere in the world, like you could just teleport yourself anywhere in the world, where would you go? Well, I have an interesting fancy of uh, the Far East Asian cultures as well. I have visited uh, Japan and Korea before. Uh, but I would like to actually return to Japan. Uh, maybe again to Kyoto. I really liked the the spaciousness of the area. So the the fairly fairly quiet place, walking around and feeling the social space between the people, of course, is different when you're a tourist and when you're a local. So 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 living from the inside of the culture, I believe, would be very different from coming outside to spend a few days. But uh, and I have never seen Mount Fuji. Or maybe I would actually would like to go to Peru as well, like visiting some local places there. A lot of, uh, lot of places. Oh, yeah, definitely. What are some other less known facts about Lithuania? Well, we already talked about trying to preserve uh, the language through the smuggling of books. So that's definitely the one, uh, which is an interesting feature. Uh, another one would be maybe relating to contemporary Lithuania and uh, regarding the IT sector. So your podcast is also related to entrepreneurship and uh, uh, Lithuanian actually has declared itself uh, by themselves, <laughs> like the FinTech hub of Europe. Uh, and it's a very good environment for startups uh, regarding IT and uh, web design and all other kind of aspects re relating with IT because it has uh, that probably the fastest speed in Europe and maybe even the fastest internet speed in the entire world. How so much? can't say. <laughs> I, I don't know MBBS? the details. Or GBPS. Uh, unfortunately, I do not know that, but anyone uh, who would like to Google, they could. But it's just a saying that it's the fastest internet and that creates a good infrastructure for uh, startups relating to IT. And fintech. Isn't Estonia also competing for that position? I heard the same things about Estonia. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm not the most reliable subject uh, on the matter. <laughs> uh, I just have read a lot of uh, headlines and listened to a lot of YouTube videos, but that is not scientifically proven facts. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, yeah. It, we, let's put it another way. We have good internet speeds. Mm. which is quite and wireless internet is like uh almost everywhere so so in a cafe you can sit down also even in a bench somewhere in the central street and use wi-fi which is which is quite cool so maybe that's not well known and so. is it free most places yes high speed free internet all right did that even mean that lithuanians are interested in web3 and crypto Yes, uh, it's definitely a big wave in Lithuania and quite a few uh, foreign 
companies are investing in building infrastructure um, inside Lithuania and transferring some of their units to the country. So, so it's definitely a growing field and working in IT is very popular. Uh, of course, you have to have skills and uh, competencies to do that, but uh, there was definitely a wave where everyone wanted to be a manager. Uh, and uh, like when I was a kid <laughs> working in business and now everyone wants to be an IT person. So, so that's just a trend of the contemporary times. All right. Let's talk about you. You wanted to become a manager, but then you did anthropology and sociology. Oh no. And now you're I teaching did not English. <laughs> I did not want to become a manager. It was just a trend. <laughs> uh, what I wanted to, I don't know. It's like, you know, some people just have different kinds of uh, attractions from being kids. You know, it's like uh, it's like your calling or whatever, something that you feel attracted to. And whenever I saw movies about ancient Egypt or something about ancient China or 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 India or some kind of a location that was quite far away from Lithuania, because you know it's like pre-internet times. And uh, at that time, there were not many uh, foreigners coming to Lithuania as tourists. So it was not yet a touristic place. So I always felt interested and attracted in, um, in foreign, foreign ways of life. So cultures in general. So that was kind of my attraction. And uh, probably I was drawn to it the most. And... Um, then I got interested in philosophy and psychology, but somehow I ended up graduating from sociology and anthropology, which is which was my BA. But uh, through visiting different locations uh, and meeting many English speakers uh, that work as tutors, uh, I have realized that it's actually a, quite a good profession to have if you want to travel and change places and also earn a livelihood doing so. So... Maybe that was one of the reasons why I decided to start teaching languages. And after some time of teaching English, I felt a little bit like I was not giving anything back to my own culture. So I decided that why not try to teach Lithuanian as well. And I'm, and I'm definitely happy that there's not a lot of Lithuanian students. There's a bunch of it, uh, a bunch of them. Uh, but it's always fun when a foreigner, for one or another reason, decides to learn Lithuanian. So it's mm. uh, it's a different kind of experience teaching your own native to, language. Yeah, and we learned how to appreciate beauty of an object of artwork as well as compliment women today. Yeah, yeah, that's a good starter. That's a good starter to have. Let's go. Your script, your written script, has what kind of uh, characters? What do you call them? symbols well it's a latin script uh so it's uh, based on the latin scripts but we do have a couple of uh, letters which are uh, maybe not just found in lithuanian but uh, they're not very common in other latin or uh, latin based alphabets so 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 we have different ways of how to say ah different ways it's mainly related to vowels but it's also related to uh to consonants so like i, I can type a couple of them to you um actually because most of them are on my keyboard so oh. just a couple of them are like here so we have those like small things under 
the vowel like or on the top under and a v on top yeah yeah or, or or a line just just a line on a vowel which most of the time uh, implicates that it's a longer vowel and also the thing on the bottom it also indicates that a vowel should be prolonged so if you just have a regular a we would say a so like when kada it's it's a short vowel but if we ask a question like what in terms like what do you want to do we would ask, ask ka it's a longer vowel so like ka norvekta what would you like to do so so this uh, and also because lithuanian is a synthetic language meaning that uh, the word order doesn't really matter that much uh, all the information is uh, coded in the endings of the of the word or in some other places inside the words so we like add and subtract different parts of the words to to change the meaning of it and it also shows a subject verb object relationship so Example. so it shows if it's a subject an object so let's take my name polus right so polus is uh, the nominative case uh, in the language and it's it's a noun that if i change the ending uh, the meaning of my name will change so poli would be for polus so we don't need to use the preposition for and we don't then have to think about where the word should stand in relationship so poli polis mago so it's fun for polus or let's say uh, invite polus uh, we would say pakviask polu so we change polus into polu mm. um if we take an object like a cup it's podukas uh, but inside the cup it would be podukia uh, and like what you want to pick up poimte uh, poduka and it's like uh, when something happened to the cup uh, it happened podukui so so we we change just like in some verbs in romantic languages we have tenses right like in the english language you also have a tense and maybe you will say i walk he walks right uh, the same would be in english but also not just with the words but with the nouns so so that's uh, i guess that's what makes it complicated but uh, this is also present in some slavic languages too and uh, most of said, slavic languages i guess and that's very interesting to know good fun fact you also said the prolonged pronunciation of vowels right that's also yes. there in that's also there in um, sanskrit related languages so for hindi there's the yeah. the vowels are many they're like 12 vowels a a e e u u Yeah, I, yeah, that's the same. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, aha, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Cool. That's, and also I've observed Hindi or in these languages have a lot of consonants in them. The consonants are very strongly pronounced. Mhm. Well, in in Lithuanian as the in the letters that I have sent to you, you can see those small kind of bird shapes on a consonant. so like a, a regular s c would be like like this right that's a regular s but if you want to have a a more pronounced s we would say sh sh so let's say let's take some kind of a object 
So there's a specific bird in Lithuania that looks like a crow, uh, but it's a little bit different from a crow. It's called sharka. So sharka would be pronounced uh, and spelled with this letter. And it's the same with other letters with, with the same symbol. So let's say we have a tz, like tsepeline, you showed the food. Uh, it starts with a tz, English C. Uh, but, then, but if we want to make it uh, more pronounced, we add the top uh, symbol and then it becomes into ch. So ch would be like, uh, that's a very good words to, to show how it works. So when you say thank you, oh, I'm sorry. For some reason, I stopped hearing you. This would have You're been back. awesome if you had a sketchboard around and show because it's difficult for me to like find a way to show it on the screen. So when you do that translation, that video with uh, the your Sanskrit counterpart, yeah. have a have a board behind you. Oh yeah, definitely. Like um, I know that Bakhtar also does like uh, so. There are two cameras, and at the bottom, there's the words in the text uh, written in the native language, I believe. Uh, so definitely, there will be those, those parts. And uh, yeah, uh, unfortunately, maybe there will be uh, to 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 show these uh, letters. Probably some editing will be required. <laughs> but mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's just it's just. Uh, so this yep. was, I was what so, I was so able to one. do so far. So I pulled up a sketch, online sketch pad and just typed it in. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. So the last one is Sharka. And if you, so that's the um, more strongly pronounced as Sh. And the Achu, the last word that I have sent, like, thank you. It also has that Ch sound, Achu. And uh, one more, it's probably Z, so like a Z. So that's Achoo. also a longer pronounced. Achu is like a, it's, it's like a sneezing sound, right? Achu. <laughs> it's like Apchu, but without the P. <laughs> and if you want to say uh, no worries, or like uh, if someone's saying thank you to you and you say my pleasure, right? So we answer by the word Prasham. So, so, if, so if you say "achu" to me, I say "prasham" to you. Oh, so, so, yeah. Interesting, very interesting. So that was lesson one or two of that uh, Lithuanian. Contact uh, police for more. It's definitely, and, and and one extra one. Uh, instead of "prasham," you s sometimes might hear "nerauška." So "nerauška" it means like it's nothing. So, so that's Narushka's, another common answer. Narushka sounds so Russian. Uh, maybe it's because uh, if for an untrained ear, it could, but it's actually three words. Nera ushka. Okay. Yeah, Quite it's, uh, maybe Nerushka definitely sounds uh, Russian, but uh, <laughs> there's like a little bit of space uh, between between the words. So in Russian, there are these common words and surnames end with ski, right? Ski at the end. So do you have any common yes. surnames in Lithuania like that or names? Well, it's it's a little bit odd. And one person has pointed that out to me uh, that uh, most of the masculine endings in Lithuanian language uh, of nouns has 
the same endings as in the Greek language. So even the word polos, so us, is a common yeah, exactly. ending both in Greek and Latin. When I first heard Latin. your name polos, right? I thought it was a Greek yes. name. Yeah, and that's a very common feature. And the three main endings of masculine nouns would be us, is, us. So, so that's the same as in Greek. So that would be like a very common and uh, almost all men names ends in us. So like Thomas, Lucas, uh, Mantas, Jonas. Like I can just keep going. <laughs> In India, it's not, I cannot say how specific it is for men, but the girl names are related to men when you add E or R to it. So my name is Tanmay. Okay. My name is Tanmay, but the girl version of Tanmay would be Tanmaya or Tanmayi. Ah. That's actually similar to, to more to the Russian language because Ya, A, E are common endings when it comes to feminine names. But also in Lithuanian, Lithuanian, let's say, that's a very common name, Maria, uh, Anna, um, maybe uh, also it's very common, Agle. So it's E or A most of the time. Agle, Katrina, different kind of names that ended A or E sounds. Do you call ananas? Bananas? It's a banana, but ananas, it's anan ananasas. <laughs> yeah, ananas is jackfruit. And not jackfruit, pineapple. Pineapple, in, in, so yeah. yeah in India, it's just, and I, yeah. It's just funny because, as I've said, like, we put the masculine us everywhere, so even if it ends at ananas, you say ananasas. <laughs> so <laughs> we still add the us. <laughs> yeah, so this is another common thing between Indian words and European. It is not there in English. So quite interesting. Yeah, but I think it's uh, there's something similar in Portuguese. Uh, I don't remember, yeah. but like going Portuguese to the shop. Portuguese and Spanish, I think, yeah. it's the same, ananas. Yeah, I think so too. What inspired you to do anthropology and sociology? And what, yeah, first answer that, and then I wanted to know, what did you study? What were your topics? Well, mainly, as, as I've mentioned a little bit before, that uh, uh, I had an interest, in, an interest in history and cultures. So like um, learning about different cultures and the histories of the regions and the people always fascinated me. So. So what were your topics was, that you studied in anthropology or sociology? Well, it's different kind of, it's mainly how to do cultural research. Uh, so that's like a predominant topic. It's like, uh, you know, study a culture. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, first, like, what is culture to begin with? So what do you want to study? You know, is uh, the, the shape of a table, is it culture? Like, or it's just like an accident. <laughs> so... Um, so first things first was how to approach studying culture and uh, how to maintain your backgrounds uh, while immersing in the other culture because many anthropologists uh, get so involved that they adapt the culture to themselves and then they want to continue living in it. So, so ah. they stop being 
they stop being anthropologists and like they they get overly immersed and they become part of the culture and leave their background. So that was like a very common theme for like uh, uh, anthropologists when the when the science began. So it's like how to balance like your uh, scientific view uh, with uh, being receptive and uh, being able to take in and uh, experience and observe uh, the peculiarities and the ways of life of other people. How can anthropologists or sociologists make money? Well, it's a very hot topic to answer that, but uh, anthropology as a field, let's say, has different kind of branches. So like there's business anthropology, there's medical anthropology. Uh, so if we think about business anthropology, so people go to different kinds of companies uh, to help uh, manage the relationships and understand the culture and be able to, they're kind of like the intermediaries between different kinds of groups of people inside a specific larger group of people. So they mediate and try to explain to the sides that don't understand each other, like, what's up? <laughs> so Yeah, even marketing, so, right? Understanding markets of a country or a region or ethnicity and people. It's very important. For example, in 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 um, in Arabic world, they read from left to right, right? Right yeah. to left. Sure. So, uh, a clothing ad which failed over there. So, in in other countries, they would show a dirty shirt first, and then a clean mm -hmm. and white shirt for a detergent ad, right? So they okay. tried to put the same board there. But what would that mean over there? They would see the clean shirt first and then the dirty shirt. So this detergent makes your clean shirts dirty just because of the way right. they read. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Sorry. And so like, uh, is... like different kind of countries have like very different kind of cultural signals when it comes uh, to expressing gratitude or trust or distrust. So it's also important to be like very culturally aware uh, in a business setting. Like the, a very stereotypical example is like uh, business relationships between Japanese and American people. So the way they approach business is very different. So one is more straightforward and kind of pushing to like sign the contract and get the deal now. It's like time is money. Another one is more like walking around the ponds, uh, trying to build trust trying to see whether we could develop a relationship in a more trustworthy manner before we signed an agreements. Even the body language is different. So like uh, a cultural anthropologists uh, do help to, to inform people about these kinds of things and to educate them about that. Is there anything specific to Lithuania or the Baltics countries in this case? Well... Um, as I said, uh, Lithuanians are quite reserved uh, on on standards. Not not all not all the time, and not everyone definitely. But uh, that's like a common theme, and uh, we're not very touchy, so we don't like to touch each other too much. So so that could uh, be a little bit like intrusive in some parts. Um, so you so don't that's, hug. Uh, important to know. You don't hug or shake hands. We shake hands. Yeah, that's common. And with friends, we also hug. 
not everyone, but uh, but but we do hug when we trust each other and we have developed a certain level of like uh, intimacy between each other. Um, also, like kissing each other on the cheeks are becoming more popular as you know, like uh, the country's uh, culture is changing. Like the because French, definitely like French way or like cheek in front of the face, cheek in front of the face or like sideways, sideways, sideways. Okay. French types, yeah, just just the cheek touching the cheek. Yes, mainly. So, so that is also becoming more common as the country. Maybe it's part of the global warming, so it's like cultural warming as well. We were seeing the kiss in the green Greenland style, so that's interesting. They, really, they touch the nose to the cheek. Ah, I did not know that. Inter- it's maybe something like. Uh, relating to the colder climates like uh, you know the kisses with the nose and all that kind of stuff (laughs) very interesting so i ask this question because i'm trying to like when i'm doing this podcast people are like you need to have a niche you cannot just have everybody so i'm trying to figure out how to um get or find the people who would be interested in knowing about different cultures and countries so people ask me, what is your podcast about? I've started now saying that it's about diversity. Diversity of all countries and regions. That's what you're covering through art, culture, entrepreneurship, and science. So whom do you think will be interested in a, a podcast like this, where each episode is something totally new, but also same in the questions we ask the, all the hosts, guests? Well, I guess uh, it's open-minded people that uh, do like to explore and uh, explore not just by traveling to certain locations, but by researching and uh, learning about different kind of people and uh, other kind of ways of life. And uh, so so probably it's mainly open-minded people that uh, are looking in the world in a broader sense than their national identity, let's say. Or they are they are like um, some kind of other identity, and as the more access is happening with traveling, it's uh, for people who just want to not think stereotypically, uh, but do do their research before, uh, you know. So so it kind of mm. broadens their minds, because you know when a close mind people hears of the words, I don't know Iranian they immediately think about an extremist or something like that, which is, uh, but but that's just what they have seen through the media, through the television and, you know, different kind of countries have different kind of schemes in terms of their politics and mass media and other kind Propaganda. of nuances. Propaganda, that, that's the main words. And of course, like, you don't have to throw away the baby with the bathwater. There's something true in every joke or in every stereotype. But if it's only the stereotype that you have in the minds, you know, then your your views of the world is twisted. And if you want to kind of untwist those views, uh, your channel is good for that because you get to see a person from a different culture. You get to hear and to also you get uh, some leads to follow. So if you're interested in a certain topic, you can then take the word that you heard or the phrase or the idea and research it further. So it's a, a good introduction, diving deeper and catching more leads. 
you know as we're speaking I, i remembered another question how is the sex ratio in baltic countries or lithuania and that manner like the ratio of men like, to women it's i think from i don't know which year but in terms of demographic which is, it's which like which is more men are more or women are more well it's around 0.9 men to every one female so uh, it's skewed and there are more females than men and mainly it's because of the world wars and uh, the holocaust because during the holocaust around from the 200,000 jewish inhabitants of lithuania 90% were executed so 180,000 died just in the holocaust and that is why we have uh, uh many kind of memorial sites for the victims of the holocaust uh, during the nazi takeover of lithuania but uh, maybe that's why i was it... a little mm-hmm. sorry that's why you were that's why i was a little bit sensitive when i saw the swastika in red and black colors and trying wow. to appropriate lithuanian symbolism in the nazi way of symbolic measures is because mm. uh most probably it was from those times and not good things were happening in the Lithuania region at that moment. Oh, I understand. Was it they was it because of the Jewish population are Jews a common mm-hmm. is a, is it a major religion in Lithuania? At the moment no. Uh, in the past uh, it was much more common uh before the Holocaust or before the Holocaust, Holocaust yeah. why why all the jews uh like uh, 90% of the jewish community uh, was lost and uh, i think part of why there was quite a significant jewish community in lithuania is because even from the 40th century uh we were inviting different kind of craftspeople and uh, different kind of specialists uh, into the lithuanian kingdom to like uh have their crafts uh, have their diplomacy running and uh, we were kind of also inclusive of different kind of people coming to Lithuania and starting their business although the word business was not uh, a, a thing at that time mm-hmm. but uh, starting their crafts places and uh, yeah so, so i think from did... those times mm-hmm. from those times why... there was a lot of juice why didn't the sex ratio improve after that like it's been a while right there has been two or three generations at least that have might have gone or four well it's a it's a common theme um in many european countries i believe that uh, the birth ratio is going down and you know even i am part of that uh, ratio uh, because i don't have kids and i'm 30 years old and uh you know just people are having less children uh we are having children later so now it's very common to have children after 30 uh, it's like a new norm and at the same time many people emigrate from lithuania because they're looking for other kind of opportunities so imagine that if lithuania is made of around 2.83 million people currently something like that 8.3 and, uh, 2.8 2.8 million people okay yeah so that that's that's not a big number but just in one american city which is chicago in 
unofficial data and official demographics, there's 1 million Lithuanians in oh. one foreign city. So it's like one third of the whole country uh, in the current numbers is in Chicago. <laughs> so you need to learn Lithuanian before going to Chicago. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> and uh, also it's good because the language, I believe like many people preserve the language outside of the country. So that kind of, so Lithuanian language currently is in endangered language list. So uh, it's endangered of disappearing, at least for mm -hmm. certain people. And uh, that's in a way that's good because uh, even if our demographics is going to continue to decrease, which is, I think no country in history has, after the demographic started to dip, it climbed back up. So, so when it starts to dip, it continues to dip. And uh, I don't know what kind of measures must have, must have to be taken to like bring that back. So that's a, a little bit uh, a sad note uh, in terms of like uh, the, the, the future of the country if it continues going that way. It's quite interesting. In India, there are more men than women. Right. Yeah, it was because of female infanticide. Right. Preferring the male child over the female child. That's changing now. Government has proposed so many laws. So it's it's really proud feeling to have a daughter. So it, it is changing. The whole society and community is changing. Out of um, ownership, land ownership and wealth related things, advantages are given to women now. So I think it, it should grow. But the at the point of population collapse or decline, I think it's happening everywhere. I spoke this, I was, uh, you're talking about the same thing when I was talking to an anthropologist from Mongolia. Really? It's even there, yeah. Wow. Only the country even where in Mongolia. It is, only the country where I have heard people having good fertility rate and uh, population growing is Africa. Yeah, still, so, still ongoing. Yeah. Well, that's, I think it's a common thing that uh, people are worried about uh, population growth. And, uh, well, it's a legitimate worry because uh, more people, um, less food and space, more environmental impacts. But uh, it's definitely going to stagnate. And most probably after it stagnates, it's going to start dropping significantly because we are going to have much more older people than young people. So, so the, the tables will turn and I wonder who is going to build the infrastructure, produce goods after most of the population is made of, of mm. old people. So luckily in Africa now, it's actually different because I, I think I have heard that in Mozambique, over 50% of people are below 15. So, and, uh, so, so it's a very young country and, um, even China now has, uh, I, I think, you know, that when there's the demographics, collapsing, most yeah, of the time, collapsing population. like in Mozambique, it's the pyramid is like this, right? So like, there's a lot, just a little bit of old people and there's a significant amount of young people and China it's more now it's becoming like a cylinder shape. So it's like the same age group, there's a similar amount of people, but because of the one child policy, that they had before it's going to change probably over time. And uh, in most 
advanced uh, or advanced is not the right word um late capitalism societies maybe we could say late where capitalism the, society i like that <laughs> uh, where where there's a lot of uh older people uh the pyramid has turned like this so there's a lot of old people less uh, middle aged people and not so many young people mm. so so that's even the even the shape shows that there's a lot of pressure coming down so and that's uh, not very good in many ways that's some interesting thought we can all ponder upon that calls us to the signature round name three people living or dead that you would like to have lunch with uh from any region in the world any region any time period Oh, that's tough. Uh, I think I would like to have lunch with the late uh, Alan Watts, uh, which was a British uh, philosopher, which actually was a very big uh, figure in terms of introducing Eastern thought. So Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, different kind of Eastern uh, philosophies and religion to the West. So he was a very interesting and well-spoken and entertaining person. So... definitely would spend uh, a dinner talking with him would be fun um maybe also daisaku suzuki which was uh, a japanese uh, scholar and and uh, and monk as well so he was also like he he was also definitely spreading uh, the japanese uh, zen buddhist way of life in not just in a, from a buddhist but also from an academic perspective which is very hard to do <laughs> from the academic side of you and one more person so let, let me think about that that's that's a good one maybe maharishi uh, why why not uh, ramana maharishi so so he was a very interesting person uh, al- although he has already passed away uh, i would like to just sit in his presence and see what it's like to 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 be with that man uh, so there uh, is a second a, part to this question Yeah. What question would you ask them? Okay. So Maharishi, I would ask maybe about his experience. Like how, how does he experience the world? Like uh that that would be very interesting to to know. Like uh, probably it could be like an answer that wouldn't make sense for me, but I would still like to hear it. <laughs> but Daisaku Suzuki uh maybe i would like uh, like to ask why buddhism just just in general because japan adopted buddhism uh, from china in the 12th century and uh, it has stuck and it has merged with shintoism like their native religion so i would just ask why buddhism and i would be curious to know and uh, with alan watts uh because he was he was an interesting philosopher but also he was uh, at the same time a quite 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 a drinker and a feminizer womanizer in some ways uh i'd like to ask like how his uh, philosophical and religious understanding uh, merges with his uh, day-to-day life you know how, how how does he manage to combine his ideas of life with his life and uh, not have cognitive dissonance like uh, what how how can he uh, still be an integrated integral person 
even though there's so much happening there. So what's in, be interesting to know about, is there a conflict there? And if it's not, how he legitimizes that. Mm, very interesting. Next question. How to make money? <laughs> Teach English. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> um, uh, how to make money? Well, Any question is there's... right. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, I think like there's a lot of um, possibilities now with the AI technologies, right? So even like the the ChatGPT invention, uh, probably is something maybe not as Gutenberg Press, uh, but but still it's uh, very important. I I believe in the, our DNH and it's going to continue and. It it helps you to automate a lot of things that's happening. So I believe like learn to code probably and learn to understand and use uh, artificial intelligence technologies. And that could probably maximize your performance in many areas. What is the Gutenberg press? Uh, it's the first printing machine. Uh, okay. So... It was invented in Germany when they started uh, printing the Lutheran Bible. I thought it was the name of another chat GPT-like software that I wasn't <laughs> aware of. But yes, <laughs> the 15th century Germanic press. version. <laughs> <laughs> but you started the question by talking about teaching. So can you just elaborate yeah. on that? Well, it's just, it was just a small joke because I am a teacher. So... Um, you, you will definitely not make millions uh, through teaching, uh, but uh, it's quite a nice way. If you like speaking with people, uh, if you like to engage on one-on-one -on -one contact or tenant, even, you know, with groups and you just like to teach, you, you, you don't uh, shy away from people, it's a very good and liberating way how to earn a livelihood given that you also know how to market yourself because there's many teachers. So like what makes you a special teacher uh, mm. that always has to, to be also like why, why you and not someone else. But I guess it also depends on many factors, like just like energy and moods and like, why, like how do you vibe with the other person? So it's like vibration in general. As a teacher for making money, would you, have more students on a lower price or have only one or two people for a much higher price? Oh, definitely the second one. Because like uh, if you play around price, then you're just being a commodity. You know, it's like uh, if that's your way of negotiation, uh, then you are putting yourself in a very big disadvantage in the relationship to your future students. It's a good way mm. to start though. I started with very low prices uh, just because I was starting. But then, you know, you have to know, as they say, your price. You know, it's uh, it's your expertise, it's your experience, it's your time, it's your energy, it's your effort. There's a lot of things that are... And if you devalue yourself, well, you're, you're doing a disservice to yourself and probably to your student too. Interesting. What is art for you? Well, probably art is life. In general, life is art. <laughs> like, uh, you're a piece of art, definitely. So am I. So it's the rest of it. So like the art behind you and that uh, nice picture, it's also a representation of uh, what you already can find and see in the universe, probably. Like uh, mixing the senses in some kind of a way. 
So like yeah. that, I think like just life from a some kind of a standpoint, from a from a some type of a perspective is art in itself. What value do you think art adds to the world? Well, probably it expands the boundaries because um, it pu pushes cultures forwards. Mainly, it doesn't. Uh, at least, uh, art in the older days. Now it's more like about breaking stereotypes and sometimes to a very silly and ridiculous extent. But it's also like uh, being able to see beyond what uh, other people regularly see. So whether it will be in a written form, in a painted, in a musical form, it's like uh, showing the others what they don't yet see through some kind of means, other means. What are the business or investment opportunities for foreigners in Lithuania? Well, definitely uh, e-commerce, IT, fintech um, areas would be good. Also, uh, beauty. Uh, beauty industry is growing and uh, maybe hello yes hi cosmetics yeah the beauty industry in general um, I, I think Lithuanians are especially the women are very proud of their looks in many ways also of their strong character but uh, everyone wants to be beautiful and uh, if you can work on your natural beauty uh, and uh, maybe give it a little twist. You know, that's also like also tourism because uh, uh, foreigners are discovering the Baltic states, and every year we get more and more tourists. So, and the uh, real estate prices are increasing like mad, especially during after the war has started in Ukraine. Mm. So, 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 so maybe there are some real estate opportunities, but uh, I'm definitely not qualified to consult on that matter in any kind of way. What is the best advice you have ever received? Um, I'll say it in Lithuanian. It's It will sound very cringe, uh, but I'll explain le later on. So, book paprastas bet neprastas. So, paprastas is simple. Prastas is like bad in terms of quality. So, book paprastas bet neprastas. It means like uh, be simple, uh, but not of bad quality. So, it's a word play in Lithuanian because paprastas and prastas, paprastas, prastas, those are very similar words, but they have opposite meanings. And when you put it together, it's a nice uh, Lithuanian saying. Although for many Lithuanians, it will sound as a little bit of a cringe, but uh, it does show that you have to have humility in your person. Uh, but you don't have to be of bad character or bad quality. So like uh, your humility, if it's authentic, actually, and if you're like knowledgeable and educated and capable of things, it kind of adds to the subject. So so probably that was one of the better advice from some of my, one of my teachers at school. What is the most priceless gift you've ever received? Priceless gifts. That's a good one. A lot of gifts come to my mind which are not tangible physical objects. And for some reason, I'm thinking about birthdays. <laughs> but uh, maybe it's one of, uh, one of the travels that uh, brought uh, me and my girlfriend together uh, during our first year of vacation. So, so she doesn't like to give objects as a gift. She likes to give experiences. 
so so we went uh, into another place uh, we bonded and uh, that's priceless because we're still together five years later so, oh, so wow. yeah so you both are from lithuania yeah we're both from lithuania and we both are teachers <laughs> what does she teach uh, english and french oh both are language teachers <laughs> And language uh, enthusiasts and teachers, yeah. <laughs> I didn't ask this to in beginning, but in what part of Lithuania did you grow up? I grew up in central Lithuania, so it's the second biggest town. It's called Kaunas. Okay. And uh, interestingly, it's always seen as a very Lithuanian type of a city because uh, it didn't what? have many... Uh-huh. What do you mean by Lithuanian? <laughs> What's because, a Lithuanian stereotype? <laughs> because mainly uh, the you wouldn't hear foreign languages in Konas often. So you would only hear Lithuanian most of the time. And uh, the capital city of Vilnius is more multicultural. It has uh, a significant population of uh, different kind of people from, let's say, from the Russian Federation, uh from ukraine from belarus from poland uh jewish people as well so so but konas one was one of those cities that mainly lithuanians people lived in not in a nationalistic sense you know that you stay away from konas or something like that it's like it just it just happens some way mm. so so and that was also a little bit of misfortune for me because as a kid, I didn't hear many foreign languages except English. And uh, some of my friends played with uh, Russian speakers, Polish speakers in the, you know, in the backyards. And as kids, they picked up foreign languages and they, you know, were able to learn foreign tongues. And you know, 20 years later, they have like four languages under the belt without even studying them. So that's cool. Yeah, the more, as you mentioned on a website, it's it's better when you have somebody to talk to as compared to reading it or just learning it or listening it. You learn quicker when you're talking to somebody. Certainly, certainly. Like, uh, you know, that's one thing that you cannot do by yourself. You can talk with yourself, but, you know, it's awkward and limited. <laughs> Best way to learn language is to talk. Yeah, well... If you're a diligent person, you can spend quite a lot of time like reading and uh, learning words and even doing like course books and grammar. And one of my friends had gave me a very good uh, suggestion to write every day in a foreign language that you're learning from day one. So if you, if I begin learning Italian today, I should write at least like 50, 100 words. Doesn't matter. Use Google Translate, do whatever, but try to put down those 50 words. And it has significantly like uh, increased his language, like English level. So, so, so yeah. But speaking, that's uh, unfortunately you cannot. Even as diligent, as disciplined, as motivated as you are, you have to have a partner for that. What do you think about Duolingo? Duolingo, I haven't used it much. I think it's good for starters, but like after a week or two, you can definitely move on. Um, and it's also fine because it, fine because it's gamified and it has like different kind of rewards. So it it triggers our parts, the brain part that gives you like a boost of happiness and motivation. You know when you get a reward. So so it's good for like the very very start. 
but probably after a, a while you should move on and like uh if you're serious about it you know find like link i'm not um i'm not sponsored by link in any kind of way i just use it it's a website by uh i forgot that guy's name steven steven hoffman maybe he's a canadian polyglot and uh, there you can uh, read and study mainly it's for inputs so you can read and listen to various kind of text in a foreign language and it has an inbuilt translator so if you don't know the word you just press on the word and you get a translation in another language so it's like it's very good to expand your vocabulary so i think after you get like the very basics you could move on to more like this kind of more input packed platform to get more out of it what is your favorite movie uh this is going to be cringe again but i think like uh the 2000 the early 2000s blockbusters like gladiator or something like that <laughs> yeah or you, or, or like you... uh, sorry i'll just add one more uh probably some of the bruce lee films because i liked hong kong films also what do you mean by cringe because you already used it two times and it wasn't really very cringy so stereotypical maybe in some ways all right do lithuanians make their own movies or is there a movie or youtube channel with just talks in lithuanian that there are i'm actually planning to do i have been planning to do it for a long time to make a lithuanian podcast uh, where i would speak uh, in a not a, too much of a difficult vocabulary but uh, just about different topics so people could listen to the lithuanian language and pick up through input yeah. so that that would be a great idea you can start that with your girlfriend like you just have I conversation was, i was planning to do that yeah true yeah that would be a great idea because i came across i wanted to use translator to check this podcast translator app so i was searching for french podcast so they yes. they actually did that the pair was talking in french to each other and then there were subtitles what what actually they're talking talking and it was a fun thing to hear well there's also one movie that got released a few years ago it was based on a novel it's what it's called tarp tarp pilku de besu so it's between uh, gray clouds in english so it's uh, mainly a movie about and a book about um, the excommunications that were happening uh, during the soviet rule so starting from the 1950s i guess when stalin was uh, in charge of the soviet union so like uh, it was uh, very common and it's it's a practice of many countries uh, not just not just soviet union but to change the population so let's say if you are a little bit richer or better off and maybe you know you have three cows instead of two so you know that's not equal and and the uh, soviet communism was all about equality whatever they, that meant to them so you are probably a bourgeois so you're stealing from the people uh, and uh, most probably you will get excommunicated to siberia so you oh, and your no. family you and your family gets uh, put in a, in wagons of trains with many other people and you get sent to a random distant location in the in the Siberian taiga and then 
other people from, let's say, the Soviet Union will be transferred into Lithuania. So also like maybe from the same, uh, what is now Russian Federation or other other places in the Soviet Union. So to kind of mix the people. And uh, so they would get like free apartments or free jobs also. But, but that was like a common thing of the era. And uh, it is what it is. But uh, that movie is about that part of history. And my grandfather with his family was also excommunicated to Siberia. So later oh. on, so he grew up there. He went to school there and he returns after like seven, eight years there with the family and uh, with his brothers and sisters and mother. Uh, his father was put into jail uh, for who knows what kind of reasons. Um, you can get into jail for anything during those times. Uh, being just a, a traitor of the country or whatever. And uh, he died after he he came back. And uh, yeah, so it's about this topic, this period of uh, time. And um, it's not extremely heartbreaking, although it, it does catches your heart and it's very artistically nicely made. Mm. So I, I, I think it's uh, one of the movies that was most recognized uh, as a Lithuanian movie from a Lithuanian mm. novel, at least in contemporary times. Listening to this, I've added one more question in the culture round. What what were the thoughts of your grandparents? What do they always talk about? <laughs> about different kind of things. So, so my grandmother tends to uh, remember the young days when she was working as a nurse in a different city. And we laugh with my girlfriend because every time when grandparents are speaking about the way they walked to school or to work, you imagine them like running through the jungle, then through like hills of snow, then running from a bear. You know, it's very extreme, but <laughs> of course, in a funny manner. But but she does remember like it very fondly, like working as a nurse, helping people. Uh, having a lot of energy, joking around, chasing away men with slippers and banging them on the heads, you know, <laughs> all this kind of stuff. And uh, my grandfather, uh, at least from the same side, uh, it was a little bit more sad because he was, uh, as he had that history of excommunication. Then, you know, he lost his son, uh, one of his sons, so my father's brother. And, uh, yeah, in the later life, he was quite a, a sad man. So he, he used to remember like the, the his life in Siberia. And, you know, so, so it was a little bit of a sadder note for him. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, mm. they, 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 they lived a country life mainly. Mm. They lived in a, in a village. They had their own things going on. And uh, yes. they, they just talked about their, their younger days. What's your favorite book? Um, I have different books that I enjoy from different genres, but uh, I really liked uh, the series uh, by Carlos Castaneda, if you are familiar with him. So he was an, um, I believe, I don't know from where he was. I think he was ethnically Mexican, a Mexican anthropologist, I mean, although studying in America. And that's a book about how he went to the Peruvian jungle uh, to investigate medicinal plants. And he encountered a Yak Indian, which was like a, a wizard, a sorcerer, a mm. shaman or something. And 
they begin their apprenticeship. And it's like a book. It, most people say that it's made up. And some people say that it's very esoteric. Uh, whatever, it, is it's a fantastic or not, the way it's written is extremely engaging. Like that's kind of what caught my interest in terms of anthropology because how detailed and how nicely put was the, you can definitely imagine like you're sitting with the people, like, you know, talking, having the same experiences as them. It's a very good uh, art of, lit well, very good piece of literature, I would say. What's your favorite food? I do enjoy Asian cuisine. So I'm fond of uh, Indian food. I actually even worked in an Indian restaurant when I was like uh, in my early adulthood, uh, just to learn to cook Indian food. I wanted to dish, study from a chef. Dish. Probably it's like uh, some kind of a dal. Uh, maybe uh, chapatis are awesome. I love chapatis. <laughs> okay, so you know what is chapati. And curries, yeah. What gets you excited about the future? I think what gets me excited on a personal level, it's mainly how podcasts are picking up and how the world is opening up to different kinds of media. So knowing that we, I and you are just like regular people that decided to buy a, I don't know, a 50 euro costing microphone, put a camera on and records our episodes. Uh, and then people actually watch it. It's, it's crazy. Like it's insane. And uh, just this kind of plurality of uh, media channels and the reach that you can get and the connections that you can build with people from all over the world, that's, that's really exciting. I think it's the pure connection. It's without any propaganda. It's people like people can relate to. It's very natural and intimate kind of conversation. That's why people like to listen into podcasts. Yeah. And also, like, there's a kind of a big epidemic of loneliness in the world, I think. Mm. And people feel more lonely and more disconnected, like, every year. And, like, podcasts helps you feel like being part of a community, you know? So, so, so it's wonderful that you can have, like, you can be in an intimate conversation between two people as a listener. Mm. So... And it also can bring a lot uh, to your other conversations with the people that you actually meet because there's no defensiveness. Uh, well, sometimes, of course, there is, but there's a lack of defensiveness. There's a lack of uh, competition. You know, there's, it, it's like just sitting with someone you know and having a chat without the extra layers. Absolutely. That's a very well put in thought. What do you like to do for fun? Martial arts. Mainly. Which one? Uh, currently, I'm practicing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Okay. Uh, but I used to do boxing as well. I tried many arts, capoeira, taekwondo. But uh, here I have a good coach of Jiu-Jitsu. I practice that. Is this thing with martial arts, right? You cannot learn it from in the internet. You need, you need a coach. Yeah, for sure. What's on your, what's on your bucket list next? Because I'm currently residing uh, in Madeira, which is an island which is the same distance from Morocco as it's from Portugal. Uh, I have never been so far to the African continent, so close to the African continent. And uh, I would like to slowly start exploring it. Maybe visit Morocco because it's very close. Um, I have never been to Egypt, never seen the pyramids. I have never seen many historical signs that are 
hard to explain, you know, I would just love to go and see it in first person and just to see like, and just ponder like how, how could this have happened? Like, how is it possible? So I would like to do that. And India as well, of course, you have many amazing uh, places to visit. There are more pyramids in Sudan than in Egypt. So we talked about it in the Sudan episode. Of course, of course. But you know, it's like, uh, maybe Bruce Lee is not the best martial artist, but probably is the most well-known. Well-known, <laughs> so, right. So it's the same with the Egyptian pyramids. And the Egyptians are the ones are the biggest. So that's why. All right. Uh, it was a great conversation. We're reaching the two-hour mark. It was wonderful to hear and talk to you about culture, about languages, and getting to learn a lot of, a bit of Lithuanian as well, at least starting on that journey. We'll connect with you on your podcast and definitely watch the episode of Sanskrit and Latvian. Thank you so much for joining us. No Any worries. Parting? Thank you for having me, Tanmay. Any parting words for the audience? Well, I guess, I guess just like don't forget to explore and like uh, don't book don't just uh, judge the book from its cover. You know, get to know its contents. So. Stereotypes are a big thing, but uh, the best way to learn about something is to get direct experience. So, so expose yourself to new things, like grow, grow your experience, mm-hmm. grow your consciousness, and just get to, get to know life is not that long from what people say, and you know, so soon it's gonna go away. So enjoy while it lasts. Totally. And how was your experience today? Any feedback for us? Well, it was great. Um, actually, you know, I had a little bit of an imposter syndrome because uh, I'm definitely not the most well-versed person about Lithuanian culture that you could uh, find. But, you know, I try to share uh, what I know. And if I actually shared something incorrectly, I would be glad if people would uh, comment and correct me, you know, maybe, maybe I made some mistakes. So I'm open to learning and uh, even learning about my own culture if I have misinterpreted something. So yeah, uh, I'm I'm hoping to get some feedback on the contents. It would be fun to hear. This episode is brought to you by Tanmay Shah. That's me. Best way to support this show is by sharing this with your friends and dropping a comment and review on YouTube. Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can become my patron and a sponsor. That's not all. You can buy Rockla's merchandise and NFTs and much more. See all the links in description for details. Rockla's Radio. Rockla's. 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 Rockla's Radio with Tom Maisha.